You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hi, y'all. Before we get to the episode, we wanted to take a couple of minutes here at the beginning of the show to do two things. First, we want to say thank you for your many kind words while we were sick with COVID and recovering. We appreciated those so much. And then the second thing we'd like to do is engage in a bit of shameless self-promotion. There might be some of you who are just starting to listen here as we kick off the Chickamauga story arc. So we want to let you know there are several ways for you to help support the podcast if you feel so moved. But there's our Tee Public storefront where you can purchase t-shirts and other stuff. Or you can make a one-time donation through the website. Or you can support us on a monthly basis over at Patreon by signing up for the Strawfoot Brigade. There's a link on the podcast website that will take you to our Tee Public storefront. And hey, with it being summertime and people being out and about, what better way to show you're a fan of the show than with an official podcast t-shirt? Then, those one-time donations are always appreciated, and you can make a secure donation by going to the podcast website and following the prompts to do that through PayPal. And no, you don't actually need to have a PayPal account to make a donation, since we've had some of you ask about that. And that brings us to the Strawfoot Brigade, and that's just the fun name we came up with for the folks who support the podcast on a monthly basis over on Patreon. Your financial support helps us out, and you get access to tons of members' episodes. In fact, we just recently released three members' episodes about Confederate Cavalry Commander John Hunt Morgan's Great Raid up into Indiana and Ohio during the summer of 1863. Anyway, you can find information about joining the Strawfoot Brigade if, yes, you guessed it, if you go to the podcast website and click at the top of the main page where it says Patreon slash Strawfoot Brigade. Also at the website, you can find info about us and photos of us if you're curious what we look like and an email address if you'd like to contact us. So what is the podcast website? Well, it's www.civilwarpodcast.org. And last but not least, you can help us out by word of mouth, which we hear is still the best advertising. So if you enjoy the podcast, please tell others about it. But if you don't like it, then just keep that to yourself. Rich. <laughs> Thank you.
Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 391 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. We'll just say right up front that we're very excited about this episode because with this show, we're starting in on the Chickamauga Story Arc. Yes, the Chickamauga Story Arc. Fought across three days in the northwest corner of Georgia in September 1863, Chickamauga was the second bloodiest battle of the Civil War, ranking behind only Gettysburg in the quantity of blood spilled. Despite that distinction, we don't think we're going too far out on a limb to say that Chickamauga isn't nearly as well known as Gettysburg. And a couple of possible reasons for this lack of recognition immediately spring to mind. First, Chickamauga was fought in the Civil War's Western Theater, rather than on what many people consider to be the war's center stage, the Eastern Theater, where every battle big and small, all receive significant attention. A second reason that Chickamauga isn't as well known is that it doesn't benefit from brand recognition, for lack of a better term. By that, we just mean that neither army was led by a general named Grant or Sherman or Lee or Jackson. And then a third reason Chickamauga isn't as well known is simply that, as far as making sense of what was going on, it's without a doubt the most confusing large-scale battle of the Civil War. The fighting, especially on September 19th, took place in wooded terrain broken up by farmers' fields here and there where, time and again, flanks were turned and battle lines collapsed into retreat, with enemy troops appearing on the scene from nowhere to join the hellish combat. Unless you've really studied the battle, it is difficult to grasp what was going on, let alone try to communicate to a reader or listener in a coherent way what was happening. However, having said that, we'll do our level best to try and pull that off. That is, to tell the story of the Battle of Chickamauga in such a way that you guys will be able to, hopefully, understand what was going on. After three days of brutal combat at the end of the Battle of Chickamauga, as the Federals retreated northward toward Chattanooga, more than 34,000 men had been killed, wounded, or captured. One Union general would call Chickamauga, quote, the most arduous, the most complicated, and the bloodiest campaign in the West. Looking over the battlefield in the aftermath of the fighting, a young Louisianan would declare, quote, I saw the awfulest sight that I ever saw in my life in this battle. The men were piled up on top of one another for miles. The ground was covered with them like leaves. Besides its terrible butcher's bill, Chickamauga is also not- notable because it was the only clear-cut victory that Confederacy's hard-luck Army of Tennessee ever gained, although, in the end, it was a victory that ultimately proved to be empty. That's because the Confederates fought the Battle of Chickamauga for control of nearby Chattanooga, and, ironically, although they won the battlefield victory, they would fail to take the city at the end of the battle. Instead, spoiler alert, 
it would take more than two months of siege and more battles to ultimately decide the fate of Chattanooga. As you could probably tell from that intro, we're going to be talking about Chattanooga for a while here on the podcast, which makes sense since the epic struggle for possession of that place is one of the most significant stories of the Civil War. However, we were overselling things a bit a moment ago when we called Chattanooga a city. That's how we think of it today, of course, because it is a large, vibrant city. But back in olden times, it was really just a town. In fact, in 1861, at the start of the Civil War, only about 2,500 people lived there, and Chattanooga was less than 25 years old. In some ways, it was in the middle of nowhere. But although located in a narrow valley hollowed out beneath the looming mountains to the east and to the west, Chattanooga, nevertheless, was a transportation hub where roads, four major rail lines, and the Tennessee River all converged. Situated in southeastern Tennessee, just miles from northwest Georgia and not far from northeast Alabama, Chattanooga served as a gateway, if you will, that was located literally along the border of the Upper South and Deep South. Because of its strategic position, the Federals considered Chattanooga a significant target. It sits on the south bank of the Tennessee River, nestled at the southern end of the Appalachian Mountains. And so, once across the river and through the surrounding mountains, the Yankees could march into the exposed heartland of the Confederacy, that is, Alabama, Georgia, and the Carolinas. Because Chattanooga provided a natural gateway through the rugged and mountainous terrain, the Federal Army needed to capture the town, and especially its railroads, in order to breach the shield of mountains and be able to strike into the Deep South. It's not too much to say that seizing Chattanooga was Union General William Rosecrans' objective from the day he took command in late October 1862. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Unlike their counterparts in Virginia, led by Robert E. Lee, the Confederate armies in the Western theater 
had rarely experienced battlefield victory. In 1862, federal advances secured all of Kentucky and much of Middle and West Tennessee for the Union. Defeats at Fort Donelson, Island No. 10, and Shiloh forced the rebels into retreat. The Confederates rallied during the summer of 1862, managing to move back into Kentucky and also threaten a return to West Tennessee, but dreams of a rebel resurgence died at the battles of Perryville and Corinth. And then, at the very end of the year, as the calendar rolled over from 1862 to 1863, the opposing armies in Tennessee, commanded by Braxton Bragg and William Rosecrans, met at the bloody Battle of Stones River, just outside Murfreesboro. Rosecrans Federals won the fight, though by the slimmest of margins. That's all to say that by the summer of 1863, the Confederate Army of Tennessee had never won a clear-cut victory in battle. Though they had achieved significant tactical successes a time or two, each campaign had ended in defeat. Overall, the summer of 1863 was not a happy time for the Confederates. Out along the Mississippi River, Vicksburg and Port Hudson fell, and with them 40,000 Confederate soldiers became prisoners. Even in the East, where Lee had so far seemed well-nigh unbeatable, a Federal victory at Gettysburg signaled brighter prospects for the Army of the Potomac. Meanwhile, for six months, ever since Stones River, things had been mostly quiet in Middle Tennessee as Bragg and Rosecrans had settled in and kept an eye on each other. Despite relentless prodding from Washington, Rosecrans took time to build up supplies and improve his army, especially his mounted arm, which was badly outnumbered by the rebel cavalry. Bragg, for his part, lacked sufficient overall numbers to take the offensive. This was especially the case after substantial elements of his army were shipped out to Mississippi in a vain effort to stave off disaster there. When Rosecrans finally commenced operations at the end of June, there was little fighting because instead Old Rosie moved his forces around in a brilliant campaign of deception and maneuver that sent Bragg into full retreat to Chattanooga. The Tullahoma campaign, which we covered in episodes 384 to 386 here on the podcast, cleared the rest of Middle Tennessee of the rebels and, by most measures, was a smashing success, except for the fact that the Confederate army was not smashed. Instead, it retreated to fight another day. Much to the dismay of his superiors in Washington, it took Rosecrans another six weeks to move his supplies forward and prepare for the next phase of the campaign. Logistical matters, that is, supply concerns, which we'll talk about in the next episode, would make even reaching the Tennessee River a Herculean undertaking for the Federals. Even then, Rosecrans would still have to solve the problem of crossing the Tennessee River in the face of the enemy. But in that, he was supposed to be aided by the simultaneous movement of another Union army commanded by Ambrose Burnside into East Tennessee from Kentucky. So the Federals had the numbers, if not the advantages of terrain. 
Rosecrans could command 65,000 men, not counting the troops needed to secure his rear, while Bragg could muster no more than 35,000. Burnside's Federals added another 25,000 men, coming down through Cumberland Gap and facing off against a small force of about 15,000 rebels in Knoxville, commanded by Simon Bolivar Buckner. But, in fact, the Confederates chose not to fight for East Tennessee. Bragg decided instead to have Buckner march down and join the Knoxville troops to Bragg's main body at Chattanooga. Bragg did that because he realized that if the combined force of Confederates could defeat Rosecrans and hold on to Chattanooga, any Yankees up in East Tennessee would be virtually isolated anyway and have no choice but to retreat back to Kentucky. And so the fight for Chattanooga would also decide the fate of Knoxville and East Tennessee. In the late summer of 1863, in the aftermath of the Tullahoma Campaign, the Federal soldiers of the Army of the Cumberland were confident of their leadership and their own fighting abilities. They felt they had saved Ulysses S. Grant's bacon at Shiloh after they had joined that battle on its second day and then spearheaded the counterattack that drove the rebels from the battlefield. Despite hard knocks at Perryville and Stones River, they had prevailed in each of those clashes as well by holding the field as their Confederate opponents retreated. Above all, the men of the Army of the Cumberland placed unbridled confidence in their commander, William Rosecrans, Old Rosie, who had led them to a nearly bloodless victory in the Tullahoma Campaign. Their second great pillar of strength was George Thomas. Thomas, a Virginian who had remained loyal to the Union, now commanded Rosecrans' largest corps. By contrast, the Confederate Army of Tennessee was riven with dissension. Army Commander Braxton Bragg was at odds with his two key subordinates, Leonidas Polk and William Hardee. The situation had nearly come to open mutiny in the spring of 1863 over the perceived failures of the Kentucky campaign the previous fall. In July 1863, after the retreat to Chattanooga, Hardy was transferred to Mississippi, but Bragg's greatest internal foe, Leonidas Polk, remained. And unfortunately for Braxton Bragg, Polk was not only a thorn in his side, but the Bishop General was also highly connected. Polk's friendship with Confederate President Jefferson Davis allowed him to undermine Bragg's authority with relative impunity. Many of the Army of Tennessee's divisional and brigade commanders were also unhappy under Bragg, and with the unsettled state of affairs within the Army. Among the troops, morale was low. On several battlefields, the Army had proved it could fight hard, but it couldn't seem to win. Especially galling was the most recent retreat out of Middle Tennessee at the end of the Tullahoma Campaign, a retreat Bragg ordered without even attempting a fight. In the aftermath of Tullahoma, disillusionment spread through the rebel ranks and desertions ran high. Then came Chickamauga. 
As we'll see in the next couple of episodes, when Rosecrans was finally ready, he launched his next movement in August. And then for nearly a month, until the third week of September, the two armies maneuvered for advantage. But with Rosecrans striking for Bragg's logistical lifeline, the Western and Atlantic Railroad running south to Atlanta, Bragg was forced to abandon Chattanooga. By that time, however, the Confederate authorities in Richmond were reinforcing the Army of Tennessee with troops from other fronts, and this time Bragg intended to fight. After a promising opportunity to destroy an isolated part of Rosecrans' army in McLemore's Cove came to naught, Bragg finally managed to come to grips with the Yankees about 15 miles south of Chattanooga in the northwest corner of Georgia along a meandering stream named Chickamauga Creek. So, that's a lot, right? But just in case you can't tell, we think this is going to be a fantastic story arc, and we look forward to sharing it with all of you. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Maps of Chickamauga by David A. Powell and David Friedrichs. This is part of publisher Savas Beatty's Civil War Atlas series, and we've recommended other books in the same series. But this one, obviously since it's about Chickamauga, will be a great reference to have handy as we go through this story arc. As always, you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then we're going to end the show with a programming note, and it's that starting with this weekend, we have some stuff coming up, either having to work a couple of weekends or traveling a couple of weekends. So we've actually planned ahead and got some shows ready to record and have in the can, so to speak, so that we'll be able to release them while we're working and traveling and whatnot. But while that keeps new episodes flowing to you guys, it also means they aren't going to be super long shows, and we're going to have to cut out stuff like thanking the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade by name, since we're recording these episodes in advance. Anyway, we hope all of that makes sense. Okay, and with that, we'll say thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.